Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to the Chase the Vase podcast. I am here with my guest, Christina Dennis. And thank you so much for coming on from sunny Southern California. Thank you. I'm a pleasure to be here. Before we start, let me make sure I do a good job introing you because this is super cool. I've been, I have reached out to you for some time. I just wanted to get you on. I wanted, I wanted my guests to be able to hear what you're involved in. I know that you are a speaker. What kind of speaking engagements do you do? I speak on addiction recovery. I speak on healing family systems. I speak about interventions. I also have a high support needs son. And so I've done a lot of speaking toward that community and fellow mothers and parents who are walking through that same situation. Yeah, like I'm sure there's there we need that right now. I know you're a teacher, you're a guide, you're an expert in adversity. I love that. I have never heard someone put that down. That is super cool because I think a lot of us are experts in adversity. And so you help people grow through trauma and divorce. Have you been divorced? I have. My son's father and I, we do a good job co-parenting, but it was very, very difficult, which is not uncommon when you have a special needs child. I love that. I have been divorced twice so and married three times, so we may need to talk about that. You are also, now check this out. I hope everybody perks up. You are an expert at breaking codependent patterns. Absolutely. That is my love. Man, so we need to we need to talk about that. But but I want to kind of give you a couple questions first. I'm a coach, you're a coach, and I want to kind of break the ice a little bit uh, and ask you some questions just about coaching. I know you've been in recovery for 25 years. That's right. Who would have thunk? Right. So tell me this: What are some of the biggest fads that you've seen come and go in recovery? Wow, that is an interesting question. I remember outside resources. So I am a 12-stepper. I came through 12 steps 25 years ago. That was what was available. And I'm very grateful. It was a beautiful spiritual program. And I still have it in my life, use the foundation of those principles in order to make daily decisions. But I remember uh, Course of Miracles, which was huge when I first came into that group, that fellowship. A lot of people were doing that. I think that was, I don't want to call it a fad because it's obviously still really, really important, but I don't hear as much about it as I did. Another one would be uh, the whole idea of, uh, I don't know, there were these forums and there were these kinds of groups named Landmark that a lot of people were going through back then. And now I'm watching a ton of new sobriety, or a ton of content that's focused around sobriety It's actually focusing more on the alcohol-free part of it. And that's interesting to me, too, because I grew up in this program. I was 27 when I got sober, and I was really warned against um, those kinds of, you know, non-alcoholic beer. I was told that is asking for trouble. And now I see a lot of people that are like it's a whole industry. So that's interesting to me. Yeah. You got sober in 1996. Yes, 1997. I'm just, I'm in my 25th year. I turned 24. Wow, congratulations. What about a fad you hated that you were like, oh, I can't believe that's coming in? 
Oh, God, I don't know if I can think of one right now. Maybe hate's a strong word. Maybe something that you just did that didn't grow on you that you didn't love. I'm not someone who adores the word character defects. I do not love that term. Um, I'm an ACOA, adult children of alcoholic. And for me, a lot of the character defects, that is the language, was a little harsh for some of the things that I used. You know, I use them as survival techniques, which is why I, after getting sober from alcohol, I started looking into outside health and I started going to other fellowships to get help with some of that healing that needed to happen. So I tend to uh, shy away from the suit up, show up, I spilled more beer than you ever drank kind of old 12 steppers, you know, and I really go toward more about the self-acceptance and self-love. I think character defects could also uh, be explained as trauma responses and as survival. I mean, for me to have been rigorously honest as a child would have meant that I would get beat. And so I, you know, have learned how to become rigorously honest through the program and through my work. But if I had gone in just with this idea, I would have continued the critical parent story, and that would not have helped me flourish. Well, let, let me give you one that I struggle with. And, and I've been in a lot of AA groups. I see a lot of these. Fat. One thing that I really struggle with is the repetition of saying who I am. I'm Brock Bevel, and I'm a recovering addict. And I know once an addict, always an addict, that montage. I, I understand all that, but mine, I'm like... Good in, good out. Bad in, bad out. Garbage in, garbage out. You know, you think about this philosophy, and it's like, okay, why do I got to keep rehashing and telling people over and over that I'm an addict? Listen, I haven't been an addict in 25 years. I haven't been an addict, in my case, in almost 12 years. And it's like, listen, when do I get a break from this? When can I say, hey, I'm no longer an addict? I still have some tendencies, but I'm not that guy who I used to be. Right. And I think that there's a new understanding of what that word does. You know, I have an associate that I work with a lot and we dive into the neuroscience of addiction. And once you understand the neurobiology of it, you're actually kind of shocked. Like I was kind of shocked that not more people were addicted because that's the entire design of the drug or the alcohol. You know, it gives you a dopamine fix that's higher than anything else, alcohol. And when you realize that your brain is made to be efficient it figures out that this is what makes it feel good. It gives it to, you You know, you go, you give it, you feed it, and then it starts bringing in all of the other counteraction. And I'm not sure, like, I don't necessarily identify as an alcoholic. I remember when I first got sober, it was like every, anybody who picked up a drink was an alcoholic. Do you remember this? Like everybody's an alcoholic. Oh, they're drinking. They're over drinking. Oh, this person. And then as I continued to get more time and I started working on other issues, I no longer want to be defined by something that I don't do. So I am kind of in the same boat as you. It's not part of my identity. I am a person who has problems with substance. Ask me, I will say, yeah, of course, I'm an alcoholic. This is what happens. But I don't necessarily believe that it's important to continue to reiterate that all of the time. And so I think that what we had was a spiritual technology that worked. I think the 12 steps are amazing. But just like we grow and we learn more about the brain, we grow and we learn more about the spirit, we can make adjustments. And it, it should be that way now. I mean, I would have never thought that AA could happen online. Would you? I mean, and it's happening how about the backlash that we get from telling our story and, and sharing 
outside of the group and talking about our recovery journey. Right. I don't, but I, I know you can't. No, I don't. And I think that's because of the types of groups that I entered. And this has to do with my codependency. Finding groups that have to respect, like, I am my own person. You are not going to cross my boundary. And it was one of the reasons why, although I love AA, I eventually left it and went to a 12-step group that was more tailored to what my nervous system could handle. Okay, I got it. Because I, I think I'm with you. I think a lot of people are evolving. They, they're in their recovery. The further they get away from that last use, that last drink, I think they evolve. That maturation process kind of helps. Absolutely. Absolutely. And your brain gets better. You know, we don't even have faculty, we don't even have access to 50% of the neurotransmitters until way over two years. But once it starts happening, you realize, I don't want to focus on what I don't do. I don't want my claim to fame be the fact that I haven't done something for 25 years. It's actually the living and the overcoming and the ability to deal with adversity and the service that I want to be defined by. Okay, good. Next question. You ready? And I've never, I just want to let you know that I, let's see, I'm on my 90, this is 96, and I've never asked questions like this, but I think it's really interesting. I can get your story out by question. So as a coach, do you prefer one-on-one coaching or do you prefer a group coaching? Oh, I like them both. I really do. One-on-one is very intense. And so what I usually like to do is work with a group and then do one-on-one sessions in between if somebody really needs to share. I've done both and I've had amazing pleasure for both. But I think that the community that gets built in a group is way more valuable than perhaps what I can do with somebody one-on-one. So I like to do more of a hybrid. Awesome. So next question, I know you work with couples as codependency. Are you more of a referee? When it comes to, I mean, how cool is this? I mean, I know I'm an addict, okay? I, I claim that. And I also know that I'm super codependent. And not just on my wife, but on food and coping mechanisms and my job and all these things that allow this outlet in my life. So I would love to hear about this expert at breaking codependent patterns. So if, if you would like to give us a little, coach us up. Well, generally, I will work with a betrayed partner. Um, I have done a lot of work in recovery of sex addiction. And so perhaps it's a a wife who has been married to a man who's addicted to pornography or compulsive masturbating. And that is very, very difficult for the wife to realize that it really isn't about her or the partner, I should say. It's not about her. Okay. Can you scream that from the rooftops? Because I actually do a class. I do training. Um, whatever, coaching on this topic exactly, on pornography. And when the wives hear this, it's so difficult for them to understand. It's so painful. Yeah, because it almost feels like the man is cheating on them. Well, and they are getting some kind of need met outside of the relationship, but it's not the need that some that your partner thinks it is. It's not about intimacy. It's the opposite of intimacy. Thank you. Go on. Teach us. And when I work with a betrayed partner, what I usually, I get the, the gift of letting them know that there was some part of them that picked this person that is afraid of intimacy as well. You know, there is something because when you connect, connect to like a, we called it COSA, a codependent of sex addict, when you connect, which I am one, you pick people that you know are not going to be able to show up for you. So what we start working on is your own stuff. 
what is it about you that's afraid? How do we go in and heal that wound? How do you figure out language so that you quit making it somebody else's responsibility to recover in order for you to be happy? Okay, so man, that's so deep. And you know what? So Christina, a lot of my guests know this, but my pornography issue started when I was eight years old and I finally got a hold of it and, and learned about it, controlled it at 42. That's some years of ingrained response mechanisms. I mean, that was always my reward system for it. I had a great day, go masturbate, look at pornography. Oh, I had a, a fight with my, my wife, go like in the brain, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's where the wives really, or the partner, I mean, women masturbate and they look at pornography as well. But the partner um, doesn't understand that it's an outlet. It's a coping mechanism. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but that's what we have. It's a learned behavior. And as you said, most of the time, sex addiction and compulsive masturbation starts very young in a male and a female. But I'll tell you, it's very much like food addiction for women and body obsession and body image obsession. And so a lot of times I explain that you learn this behavior when you're young, right? Like you said, you self-soothe. It's attached to your personhood. You learn how to do it. It's effective. It's actually something that helps you survive. And it's been a pattern that's been in your brain for a long, long time. And that means it's going to need to be addressed. But the wife cannot be the one who addresses it. They can do it together as a couple. But she, the partner, must figure out what part of her wanted that into her life. And that takes some time and some gentleness, right? Because a lot of the ladies will show up in my room and they'll think, well, it's his problem. It's not my problem. If he would just quit doing that. And after a little while with us sharing our stories about how we picked, you know, sex was my currency too, Brock. It was one of the reasons why I felt safe. If I could seduce you, I had some kind of power. And when I started getting really, really honest with myself, I realized I was using it the same way. You know, I was trying to gain some kind of control. And so when women or partners, I should say, figure out that it's a lot like a food addiction or obsession, I can say, would you be mad if, would you think it's all right for him to be mad at you for having a brownie? You know, let's say you're trying to stay off sugar. You're trying to get to a place where you have some sobriety around food. It's the same exact ism and it's really, really painful and it's so misunderstood. And after a while, we can get to a place where a slip, let's say there's a slip that the partner doesn't have to go downhill completely and ruin uh, the relationship or ruin even her day because she can do what she needs to do to take care of herself. Yeah. Isn't that crazy though, Christina? Like food has such a soothing feeling, but so does, so does masturbation, right? And that's what people, it, it's hard for them that aren't involved in it. And we are speaking to the people listening to the podcast. It's hard for people to understand that there's even a symbiotic relationship between food and sex. There's so much, so much. Are they the same? Um, 23 years ago when I started down this road, because that is part of my story. I got sober, met a person in the program, totally blew off the whole don't get involved for the first year because I was a co-sex addict and I needed that attention. I needed that validation to be okay. I had to be partnered with somebody and of course met somebody who was addicted to pornography and had been for many, many years. It had nothing to do with me, but it's the one thing that took me down in my program where I had to really get 
to the source of my insecurity, the source of my pain, because I loved it when he was addicted to me. I loved having that power. The problem was when he moved on and it reminded me of when alcohol stopped working. Then I was in trouble. I was in serious trouble. And so I had to get really, really good and honest. And it is a childhood issue generally. It was with me and it was with him. So if you were paying a number on your clients, because for me, it's almost 100% that these traumas as a child are still affecting them today. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Okay. Not everybody. I mean, but you rarely hear of somebody picking up porn at 50 years old. Right. It's not one that, that goes through. Same with food. If you've been using it, it's a childhood wound that needs to be addressed because it, you know, alcohol, I realize that can sometimes come later in life. So I've certainly met plenty of women that drink, you know, socially, then had a trauma and then went into it. But everyone has trauma. There's just, uh, you know, there's big trauma and there's little trauma. And generally speaking, I think that most people have big trauma. It starts with their childhood. Good. Love it. Next question. You ready? What's the biggest excuse you hear from your clients on why they can't heal? Hopefully the excuse is okay to say, because I working with a lot of clients, I feel like they're so afraid to heal. So they got to throw something out. They got to give a reason. This is why. Exactly. And that would be facing their fears. And they would never say that. What they would say is, I can't because of this, this, and this. And those would be little objections that they throw up so that they don't have to really face their fear. And in COSA or, or codependent recovery, it's about showing up exactly as you are without any pretense, living life on life's terms and being vulnerable, saying, this is who I really am without all the over gifting, without the control, without the manipulation. Uh, this is who I really am. And they are so afraid that who they are is not enough. Mm, not enough. I've heard that so many times. I'm just not enough. That's why he masturbates. That's why he looks at porn. Exactly. We put that on us. What pain do we give that other person? It is so shameful for the addict, though, if I could just interject to the ladies and uh, to the partners, they should say. It is so shameful for the addict. And it's, it is, has nothing to do with sex. It has nothing to do with intimacy. And the fact that you're not involved is, the way, is that person's way of protecting you from it. You know? Yeah, but it's such a, man, I'll tell you what, the, the biggest shame I felt was my inability to control it. Because I really value my ability to be mentally tough, but I'm not mentally tough over that, or I hadn't been mentally tough. And it just, it felt like it just kept attacking me. I would do good for months and then I would fail and look at porn for, I mean, heavy, heavy, heavy for three months. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm taking back control of my life. And then I would stop it like cold turkey, stop it. But it, it never lasted. It just kept this vicious cycle. So what did you do? Did you use the circles? Because I love the circles. Did you have a bottom line that you crossed through? I'm, I know it's, you're interviewing me, but I would love to know your story. No, I love it. When you say bottom line, what do you mean? Did you have a bottom line acting out behavior? Because uh, with a lot of couples, we talk about what a bottom line is. And they say, oh, if he masturbates again, I'm leaving. Well, that's probably not realistic. You know, that needs you need to have a bottom line behavior like he, he refuses to go get help or stays out of it. There are certainly things that you can do, and that's all right. You know, in my relationship, I'm remarried and I have 
you know, discussed it with the person. He is not a sex addict. And it was very interesting to see his face when I was like, I need to know if you consume porn. And he was like, no, that's weird. Why are you asking me that? So I know how devastating it can be for people and addicts. Well, Christina, that's a great question. I had bottom lines that I would say, okay, I'm not masturbating again. I'm not looking at porn again. But I noticed that I that was where the shame really came in is I made my own bottom lines for myself that I broke every time. And but here's the other problem. And, and most people know my story is I was an undercover police officer. So I knew how to mask, hide, be maniacal, my porn use. And it was so in, in my family, we were super religious Okay, in in our home, and religion played a vital role in my in feeling unworthy, right? And so my biggest fear was my wife finding out. And at no point in time did I have that comfort of saying, "I have this major issue," because I lied about it for so long. She had seen little red flags, but I never told her. I I look at porn. I masturbate. I have a hard time maintaining relationships, long-term relationships. I skip around. I mean, I wasn't honest with her. I have to take that. I have to own that. And so a lot of it was me. And so if we can talk to the wives out there, like you got to dig in. You got to dig on these questions because we as men are not going to volunteer weakness. And that's where I felt, Christine, is I felt that weakness. Like, ah, I can't tell her. How do I tell her now where we've been married five years and I've hit it for this long? Because I know the question, well, how long have you been doing this? Well, since I was eight. Well, why didn't you tell me? So if you lied about that, what else did you lie about? You know, partners go right down that road. And what would be great is if we continue to have conversations like this, that first of all, work on not demonizing it. There is something so shameful about it and it needs to be stopped because what it's doing to an addict's brain, what it's using, makes it very, very difficult not to continue doing that. Why you have that kind of brain, I'm not exactly sure. But I do know once your brain figures out that there's pleasure attached to it and you grow up a certain way needing it, it's going to be really, really difficult. And what we have to do is take these conversations out into the public so the partner knows not to go down a road that's going to make it harder for her partner to share with her or their partner to share with them. They need to be able to go to places like this, read about it, and it not be so shameful and hidden. I will say, you know, the internet has has actually brought it. It's like the crack cocaine of, you know, porn. But this is an issue that's been going on for many, many years. And I love the fact that you brought up the church and sex because that is not handled well. I mean, I would have to say one thing about the modern church, uh, no matter which, you know, type of church you go to, they rarely handle it the way that they should. I mean, I, I guess since we're talking about pornography, it's easier for me to walk into my ecclesiastical leader and say, listen, I drink alcohol to excess. Or guess what? I've been uh, I've been using my opioids incorrectly. I'm self-medicating. And I think as a, as a leader of a church, you're, if you've never experienced it, you can understand it. But if I come in and say, listen, I've been looking at pornography, which has caused me to become unfaithful to my wife, right? Which is causing me to this dirt. It's a dirty secret, Christina. It really is. You know, right? We drink in front of people. People know we're drinking. 
we do use drugs alone, but we masturbate alone. It's a secret thing. It's a it's a hidden. I'm in my closet. I'm, it's almost like I'm under my bed and you can't see what I'm doing. And then we come out, we're supposed to be this great husband and father. And so do you think, and I just went about, holy cow, all that. But Christine, do you think it's because we don't know how to handle that? And, and there's still a stigma that it's a dirty, disgusting trait. It is. And you're right. It's totally that. And there's something, there's also a, a belief system that all men do it, that it's perfectly acceptable You know, there's a whole kind of atmosphere out there where pornography isn't looked on as it should be as an industry. And I know I might be staking my claim here, but generally there's so much bad business attached to the pornography business, but it's so uh, lucrative that they're not able to cut it out. People should be worried about it, what it's doing. I mean, you think about your sons, my my son, I have a 17-year-old son, and I think about nobody talks to him about this. Now, he's nonverbal. He's special needs. So I have actually gone in and had frank conversations about masturbation and where it's allowed and how it's perfectly acceptable. But I will watch and curate what he sees for as long as I can, because it's really, really difficult once you've been exposed to it to be able to stop. It's dangerous. Because it's such a visual stimulating tool that they use. I don't want to say they use against us because we willingly look at it, right? It's so appealing to the to the eye, to the naked eye. That's kind of a, a play on words. But I mean, it's it's very difficult. And so, okay, expert in this, talk to us, break this pattern. You're, you talk about being codependent. We're talking about intimate relationships. How do we break some of this stuff then? Well, in co-sex addiction, which is what I would say, you know, and I know some people the way that they, we identify now is my life has been affected by compulsive sexual behavior. And I tell, you know, I really believe that it would be like one in two, honestly, if people really got down to it, that's how prevalent it is. If we're able to start having conversations in places, but with a co-addict, what we have to do is we have to bring that person into an understanding that on some level they chose this and how they can take this incident and turn it into a victory, how they can learn to love themselves, how they and their partner can come up with bottom lines that work for both people. Most of the time, a co-addict needs to get really, really busy thinking about their behaviors, why they're there, what part of them likes the control over an addict, what part of them wants to, you know, take the responsibility off of themselves and put it on an addict you know, so that the addict must get better in order for that person to be okay. It really is coming up with a self-awareness program, a self-healing program, a forgiveness program. It's the same as an addict because we are addicted to the results of somebody else. Okay, coach, I'm going to throw this out there. I want to see you help me out. Okay, so let me just give you my my life really quick. I believe I self-diagnosed absolute sex addict. Compulsive masturbation, compulsive uh, pornography in the past, okay? My current wife of three and a half years was married to an individual who also struggled with similar behaviors. She is not an addict, does understand the addiction. She has been to, she's been to classes, she's been to AA, she understands it. But how do you work in that environment? Because I know If my behavior changes, Christina, at all, her mind automatically takes her to he's doing something 
sexual. He's looking at porn. He's texting other women. And, and, and I know that's natural. And so I'm not putting all the behavior on her. But how do you work when that kind of relationship's happening? When I, I have admitted, I've been open about it. So when her brain is like, oh, our relationship's struggling a little bit. He's mad at me or I'm mad at him. Does he automatically turn to porn? Well, I mean, they're your wife or a co-addict in this case. I know that she doesn't struggle with chemicals per se, but she's absolutely in that same addictive uh, pattern, right? And a co-addict is the same as an addict. They just don't need the substance in order to behave like that. And so what would I would do with your wife is we would start going through history, figure out the common denominator of all of the relationships. And my guess and bet would be that that you and her former husband are not the only addicts that she's had in her life. So we would go back, 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 back. Many times, co-sex addicts realize that they were raised by a father who was probably addicted to pornography, that there were certain things that they saw that were told, oh, that's just the way it is. They had a pattern of a relationship they watched between a mother and a father that's very similar, and they are still behaving as that adult child. They're still acting in that way, which is reactive, it's controlling, it's manipulative. And so we always have to heal the wound of our own self. This is, this is what we learn. And, and you, I think that we've kind of started coming to this as a, as a country or as a world about nobody else can complete you. And you remember Jerry Maguire's, you completely, that was the most romantic. And so people are starting to realize, no, that's probably not okay. But there you haven't quite got to the fact that they have to learn how to heal their history. Otherwise, they're going to continue to draw this circumstance into their life. And once you're able to talk about that, and I don't know if you and your wife have had, you know, a red light behaviors, yellow light behaviors, green behaviors. If you sat down and talked about this is what's going on when I do that. And this is how you have to approach me. But I would definitely encourage anybody who's a partner to go online, look at COSA, Codependence of Sex Addicts, find some help in a support group, get a coach find a partner, you know, a partner of maybe your husband's person and start talking about it so that you're not sitting there and you're not just reacting. This has been absolutely amazing. I, I love it. I can attest to you that my wife has sat down. She's been amazing at this. Uh, we have gone back to childhood. I know my mother and father-in-law listen to this. They are amazing people. I know their behaviors in the past has never come up, but I do know that in her past relationships, she's been hurt by it. She's been affected deeply by it. And so those wounds are, are on the surface. So I'm the one that's trying to stitch up these wounds while I have these past behaviors. And so that's, that's kind of an, uh, an oxymoron. I, I kind of walk that slide a little bit. So you have been amazing, Christina. I am absolutely honored to have you on the show today. I want to push people who are who are feeling that you would be a great coach for them to www.christinadennis.com, right? That's your website. I know you talk about your coaching. You have some amazing reviews on there. You have an awesome Instagram who I who I look at. It's Christina Dennis. Uh, you have you're on Clubhouse. I know that you're doing phenomenal. And actually that's where we met. What a cool thing, right? I mean, I feel like it's just such an example of where recovery can go. Yeah, and, and we're not fit in this box anymore. Like, there's not just AA. There's not just uh, a higher power. There's so much to to it. 
So both of us, I know you're going to say the same thing. Find what works for you and enhance it. And congratulations on your 25 years of recovery. I want to give you one last opportunity to share with my listeners, your listeners, just something that you would like to share with them this holiday season. Oh, absolutely. So as we're walking into holiday season and we hear a lot about service, 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 I'm going to tell you that really, really, it's the time for you to take care of yourself. Don't make it somebody else's responsibility that you're okay. It's your responsibility. You can learn to love your your life. You can. And stay the course. If you're in the herd, stay in the middle of the herd because it gets so much better. I love that. Thank you for chasing the base, Christina. You've been an amazing guest. Um, If you want to find more about these challenges that we've talked about, please go to christinadennis.com. Go to www.stripplingwarriorchallenge.com for more information on how to battle addiction. Until next time, Christina, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.